Last Sunday, we wrapped up chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, the chapter that is often referred to as the Hall of Faith, in which we were told of 16 men and women from the Old Testament who, despite the fact that the promised Messiah had yet to come to earth, they believed that he would, and they entrusted themselves to that future Messiah who would overturn the schemes of the devil atone for their sin and make them right with God and secure for them eternal life. And these 16 men and women that we traveled through, we read their names and a bit of their stories in Hebrews 11, despite the myriad of trials and tribulation they faced, they walked by faith in God. They believed that God is who he says he is. They believed that God would do all that he had promised to do and they entrusted their selves, their well-being to God through thick and thin. The Hall of Faith is an appropriate nickname for Hebrews chapter 11. And now as we turn to Hebrews chapter 12, uh, the writer of Hebrews still has those men and women from chapter 11 on his mind as he turns now to his first century Jewish Christian audience and he writes, therefore, right there in chapter 12, verse one, therefore, since heaven is filled with and since we are surrounded by a stadium, if you will, a cloud of these faithful Old Testament examples, let us now today run the race of faith that is set before us. I could easily just keep on reading. Let's just start over. Let's read it just as it is as it is written. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's do verses 1 through 11. If you are on a device, we use the English Standard Version of Scripture here. And it might be easier for following along if you pull up that version. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses... Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, 
All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Well, Father, this is your word, and we are indwelled with your Holy Spirit. Your spirit here is among us, and we would ask that by your spirit, for the glory of your Son, that you would give us understanding of this word, that we might more than just understand it, that we might behold, believe, apply, and live it. For your glory and our joy, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. A beautiful and challenging passage. If I were to boil down these 11 11 verses into a single exhortation, it might go something like this. As God's beloved children, with our eyes fixed on God's Son, by the enabling power of God's Spirit, looking forward to the glorious renewal of God's creation, We are to live holy lives in the midst of this unholy world. And the holy lives that we are to live on this spiritual race that we are to run, that kind of holy life will require considerable discipline. The concept of Christian discipline is at the heart of these 11 verses. And so, for the remainder of our time, if you are a note taker, here is the outline we will follow. Number one, we'll consider our call to discipline. Number two, we'll consider our comfort in discipline. And number three, we'll consider our reward for discipline. Our call to, our comfort in, Our reward for discipline. Number one, our call to discipline. Verse one, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, I love that language, let us also, you and me and all of us, lay aside every weight, every sin which clings so closely, and let us do so in order that we might run with endurance the race that is set before us today. If you are a Christian, a believer, a follower of Jesus, right here is what you are called to right now. Right here and right now, not tomorrow, not in a few months when things slow down. This right here is the discipline that you and I are called to right now. We must get busy laying aside every weight and every sin that is slowing our pace as we run toward the finish line of this present life, the finish line upon which we will be greeted by Christ. So I'll start with the obvious part of this call. We need to get busy laying aside every sin. That's the obvious part. We're gonna talk about every weight here in a minute. Every weight and sin. Let's start with sin. We cannot possibly run toward Christ. We cannot possibly finish the race of this life well if we're busy playing hopscotch with vanity and materialism 
and overindulgence and lustful self-pleasure and a mouth that salivates for gossip and the list goes on and on and on. Jesus has freed us from our former bondage to these things and just like the Jewish Christians who were the first to receive this letter, we need to be reminded that Jesus has freed us from our bondage to these things. If you or I or any of us struggles with vanity and materialism under the guise of the American dream, if that resonates with your spirit this morning, it's time to ask a trusted believer to remind you of your heavenly citizenship and to help you to stop building for yourself a little oasis here on earth. We're citizens of a different kingdom. It's time to ask a trusted brother or believer if, if the sins of overindulgence and lustful self-pleasure and a gossipy mouth resonate with you. Brother or sister, it's time to ask a brother or sister in Christ to remind you that Christ has made you into a new creation and it's time to stop worshiping your carnal desires as if they're your God. This is what, it, let us lay aside every weight. It, it, it's just simply time, brothers and sisters, for you and me. It's time. Now, as I use those examples, who among us, you don't have to be a show of hands here, but who among us is even feeling an inkling of, of, of conviction? Now, who among us, here's the challenge, who among us will actually have the discipline to do something about it? It could be that professing Christians who are in the greatest danger of not reaching the finish line are those who show up every Sunday to sing a few songs and to greet one another with a confident smile, but who do absolutely nothing to actually put sin to death in their life. Let us lay aside every sin. It's a weighty passage. It's a heavy passage, but it... It's a good passage. Let us lay aside every sin that clings so closely, but let us not stop there. The writer starts with weight and sin. Let, let us also lay aside every weight. And I think that this is an aspect of Christian discipline that we don't often, at least I don't often consider. Here's a story. In the seventh grade, I signed up for cross country and it was really unfortunate. Uh, because the sign-up sheet said nothing about the fact that all you do in cross-country is run. Uh, there's no javelin. <laughs> there's no shot put. There's no ball to hold. There's, there's, all you do is run. And the sign-up sheet, I think, just assumed that I knew that, and I didn't. Well, early on in my seventh-grade cross-country season, it was my one and only season, by the way, <laughs> when my team went for a five-mile training run, I attempted to carry along my big water bottle while we ran. <laughs> Once again, the sign-up sheet failed to tell me how impossibly heavy a water bottle would become, oh, about half a mile in. It drained my energy. It slowed my pace so much I nearly didn't make it back. In fact, my coach had to carry my water bottle for me. He almost had to carry me all the way back. And I think that this illustrates an aspect of Christian discipline we don't often consider. 
the necessity of laying aside not just sins, but excess weights. Not just overtly bad things, but also good things that crowd out the best things. That committee that keeps inviting you to join their efforts. That leadership board who offers you a pretty influential chair. That additional travel team, third or fourth or fifth travel team that your kid wants to play on and the coach wants your kid to play on. How about that nonprofit that's desperate for more of your time? These are all relatively good things. But good things add up. And when good things such as these so add up and so overcrowd your schedule that you no longer have the capacity to slowly and regularly and quietly soak in God's word, that you no longer have the capacity to intentionally be with your wife or your husband and care for them, that you no longer have the capacity to cultivate your children, that you no longer have the capacity to serve and to build up your church to whom you are called or to show the love of Christ to your neighbors who are dying to hear it. If the good things on your calendar have become so numerous that the best things of the Christian race are being neglected, they are weights and they need to be cast away today. The path to exhaustion and to eventual elimination from the race, that path is cluttered with a list of good things that are not the best things for us to carry. For me, I think of my my offices of life as this. I am a Christian, and then I am a husband, and then I am a father, and then I am a pastor, and then I am a neighbor. And if what I'm being asked to do doesn't fit neatly into one of those categories, the answer, especially in this season, we're finding very quickly, it has to be a no. That could be good, but it is not mine to carry. Because I'm a son of God first. I'm a husband to Lindsay second. I'm a father to Finley, Bray, and Haddon, Keller, and Emmett. I'm a brother pastor to the saints of Oaks Church. And I'm a neighbor to the Guns, the Zidrons, the Piecrafts, the Ransoms, the Neptunes, they would probably freak out to know that all of their names were just mentioned right now. None of them are here. But those are my offices in life. What are yours? And are you willing to do the hard introspection and to cast aside the weights that are good, but they are keeping you from more intentionally and effectively addressing the things, the best things that God has called you to? This is our call to discipline, point number one. Point number two, our comfort in discipline. So as Christians, right, we're to, live, we're to live holy lives in the midst of an unholy world. I don't think anyone would argue with that. But the discipline that is required to make us and to keep us set apart from this world, yes, it, it in part is our, our self-discipline. But it is, not, it is not solely reliant upon our own discipline casting aside every sin and weight. Our comfort in discipline is that God himself is active in it. And we see it in this passage. 
Let me just illustrate, though, for a second. So my cross-country coach, I'm going to beat this illustration into the ground. My cross-country coach, I think that, no, I know that he wanted me to reach the finish line even more than I wanted to reach the finish line for myself. And so in order to ensure that I would reach the finish line, my coach, he would often lead me on training runs up and down difficult paths that I would not have chosen for myself. He would lead me through difficult terrain on purpose and not to beat me down, but to build me up. And the same is true when it comes to our Heavenly Father's role in our Christian discipline. Look at verses 5 and 6 of our passage where the writer of Hebrews quotes from Proverbs chapter 3. Personalize this. Hear this. My son, my daughter, don't take lightly the discipline that comes from the Lord. Don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. He chastises those who belong to him. Now, this isn't an easy concept to wrap our minds around. But I'm telling you, I would argue there is profound comfort in this. As Christians, every trial, every tribulation that comes our way in this life comes our way, not for one reason, but for two reasons. The first is this, it's the obvious one. We live in a sin-fractured world. Disease and devastation and death are the tragic wages of our willful rebellion against God. Every trial and tribulation we face, and I'll put my money where my mouth is here, motor crashes that leave us deaf, cancer diagnoses, these things are an ever-present reminder to us that things are broken around here. We're broken. We need renewal. But also, at the same time that scooter accidents and cancer diagnoses, while they remind us that we are broken, that we live in a broken world and we need renewal, mysteriously, at the very same time, every trial and tribulation that comes our way in this life does not happen to us by unsupervised chance. This is big boy, big girl, sovereignty of God talk here. Our good and loving heavenly father is not and does not look down from heaven nervously watching as fate bullies his kids. Somehow, in a way that I admittedly fully, I don't fully understand, even the trials and tribulations we face are superintended by our loving God who is wise and powerful to bring beauty from ashes. The Apostle Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 when he's, he's riding to the church at Corinth and he's like, so we face some, this is my paraphrased translation by the way, 
So dudes, we faced some serious affliction in Asia. And it was terrible. It was so bad. We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. But we know that God's good purpose in it was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on him who raises the dead. And let's not forget Joseph. The writer of Hebrews listed him in the hall of faith in the last chapter in Genesis chapter 50, 20. Joseph explains to his 11 brothers who sold him to Egyptian slave traders. He says to them, you meant it for evil. Yeah. You beat me and you sold me into slavery. And it's been torment for the last 10, 15, 20 years. But what you intended for evil against me, God himself intended for good in order to save lives. I'll speak for myself as we chew on and consider God's disciplinary work in our lives. I'll speak for myself. Or myself, I'm only one person. It is profoundly comforting to me that God is active in the trials that I'm facing. He is not pacing back and forth and biting his fingernails to the bone, hoping that something good might come from all of this. No, he is actively working in my diagnosis in more ways than I know, especially this, he is deepening mine and my family's trust in him and he is ensuring that we will finish the race that is set before us. My goodness, glory, hallelujah, I want that. More, Lord. The truth is that I wouldn't have become the cross-country runner that I became if my coach hadn't taken me up and down paths that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. I wouldn't be the man I am today if my dad and mom hadn't used a firm but loving whoosh from time to time when I needed an adjustment. I wouldn't be the man that I am if it weren't for that. There's a biblical wisdom in that. It's all over the Proverbs. The point that the writer of Hebrews makes in verses 7 through 11 is that our heavenly father's discipline of us is never easy, but my goodness gracious, it is always good. In fact, it proves that we belong to him. And so what trial or tribulation, brother or sister, are you facing right now? It's a real one. What are you facing? What disappointments? What uncertainties? What incredible doubts or fears or hurts are you lugging around with you today? And I would just ask the Holy Spirit to bring you this comfort that in fact none of that is happening to you on account of unsupervised chance. But you are right smack dab in the middle of the palm of a good and loving father who is shaping you. This is the comfort of discipline, our comfort in discipline. He's involved. It's not abstract or ethereal or impersonal. 
Lord, teach us this. Number three, I reward for discipline. I've already danced around this point a number of times. But I need to just come out and say what the text says already because that's what expository preaching is anyway, right? So with our eyes on verses 10 and 11, what we're seeing here is that better than every good earthly father we could possibly imagine, when our heavenly father corrects us with his loving hand of discipline, it is for our good because it is for our holiness. We learned back in Hebrews 10 We've already been made perfect in God's sight through the sacrificial death of his son on the cross. That's a done deal for any who by repentant faith, turning from sin and entrusting themselves to the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross, death, burial, resurrection. It's a done deal. You have been made perfect in the eyes of God through Jesus and I would urge you, brother or sister, no, no, I won't call you that just yet. Sorry, I'm in a habit of you, brother or sisters, right? This is the gathering of the saints. If you have not laid down your sin, confessed your sin to God and cried out for the salvific work of Christ to be made real in your heart, to wash you of sin and to relinquish you from the, from the powers of sin and to bring you into the unshakable, eternal kingdom of the living God now and forever I would urge you to do so and you don't need an altar call for that you do it right now do it cry out confess and trust and then tell one of the pastors because we need to dunk you in water we learned back in Hebrews 10 we've already been made perfect in Christ but now, if you're in Christ, mysteriously and marvelously, God the Holy Spirit is going to see to it that you begin to look like the perfect Savior who saved you. Sanctification is the fancy word for it. In the moment, verse 11, all discipline, whether it's self-inflicted discipline or God-inflicted discipline, in the moment, all discipline seems painful. Not pleasant. <laughs> Learning to say no to the worldly things we used to coddle and worship. That's hard. That's painful. Especially when all of our friends who continue in their waywardness and unbelief when they're, when they're doing it. Ah, oh, it's painful to say no to the ways of the world that used to define me and to now step into the new creation I am already in Christ. That's painful. It's also painful to subject ourselves to the, to the discipline, to the Lord's discipline of God, uh, Lord's discipline uh, to us, learning to, learning to, with faith eyes, look at the trials you and I are facing right now. The, the, the work scenario, the, the, the home scenario, the relational fractures, to look at maybe uh, if you're receiving backlash in the workplace on account of your faith or, or a, a wayward son or daughter, I don't, whatever, you get, the, you get the idea, subjecting yourself to the discipline in the Lord therein and learning with faith to view those trials 
not as obstacles to be avoided at all costs. You don't you have to like it. But to also view the trials you're walking through right now as invitations by God himself. They are opportunities to step into, okay, Father, by your Holy Spirit, reveal to me what it is you're trying to show me in this shipwreck. What is it? What is it? In what way might I need to let go more of the world and to trust you? In what way might I need to let go of my own self-reliance and trust you? That this passage comes after Hebrews chapter 11. Well, it's not ironic. I mean, it was all written as one linear thought, right? But here's what we should take in our transition from chapter 11 to this chapter Chapter 12, verses 1 through 11. No true follower of Christ, whether the Old Testament believer who longed for Jesus' arrival or the New Testament believer who peered into his empty tomb, no true follower of Christ has ever said nor will ever say, huh, I really wish that trial wouldn't have come across my path last year. Because I really wish that my eyes hadn't been opened more so to the things of God. I really wish that that, that trial didn't force me to trust God all the more with my life. No, no true believer will ever look back and say, you know what, I really wish that wouldn't have refined me the way that it did. No, 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 no. Every imperfect Yet true follower of Jesus looks back on his or her life at all the calamities that have struck, the difficulties, seasons of wandering, questioning. Every one of us looks back by the mercy of God and we say, you know what? No, I see goodness in that. On this side of it, I see goodness in that. And I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful that you, like a cross-country coach, a glorified cross-country coach, called me to paths that I would not have originally taken for myself. I wouldn't have taken that path, but you called me to it, and I am better for it. I'm thinking of Job. I don't remember what uh, chapter, but at the end of the book of Job, after Job has gone through all that he has, he's reflecting prayerfully with God, and he's like, well, here's, here's what I've learned. After all of this, before all of this, I had heard of you. My ears heard of you. But now I've seen you. I know you. Because we don't know and don't walk in the fact that God in Christ is all that we need until Jesus is all we have. There is a real gracious mercy about stripping away all the things we think we need until all of a sudden what we're left with is, you know what, Jesus and Jesus alone, that's it. That's all I need. That's all I need. And that's what we see here to finish up, put the gospel bow on it, because the gospel is what every passage points us to. We have all these, this helpful list of Old Testament faithfuls to look back to, but boy, do you and I, we have an even better new covenant savior to look at. Chapter... 12, verses 2 and 3, goodness, looking to Jesus. And right there are the origins of our little tiny mustard seed faith. 
The fact that you believe that God is who he says he is, that you believe that God will do all that he says he will do and that you've entrusted yourself to him, look who the founder and perfecter of that faith is. Right there. We're looking at right at him. Right on that empty cross and empty tomb and his resurrected glory, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And what we see here is that even he was subject to the Lord's to his father's discipline because of the joy that was on the other side of it. Right? No runner in the midst of a race goes, gosh, I absolutely love sweating my guts out, running on this trail with absolutely no end in sight. No! It's when we see the finish line and cross the finish line and that wreath is placed around our neck, the wreath of righteousness, the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Oh, my sweet mercy, what a reward. And that Jesus will be the one to crown it. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who himself, for the joy that was set before him, he took your every sin and mine, past, present, and future, onto that cross, the cross that we deserve. He despised the shame of it. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, believer, enjoy the pain. No, no. Despising the shame, but looking beyond it to the joy that awaits and of course, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, waiting for that time when you and I will cross that finish line by his strength that he supplies in his spirit. Hallelujah, yes and amen. May it, in fact, yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are presently being trained by it. And may we not grow weary. What a prayer. Maybe you need to hear that in some specific way that I don't have. I'm not outfitted for it. You're facing something. Brother in Christ, don't grow weary. Sister in Christ, do not grow weary. Look at Jesus. He is bringing you home. He is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Anything that I have said that is of me, Please, I beg you to allow my brothers and sisters to forget immediately. But the things that are from your word, the explanation of your word, which never fails, I pray, Lord, that you would write onto our hearts and that we, Lord, would be changed and that we would walk in self-discipline with our eyes fixed on your discipline, Father, knowing that you are refining us into the perfect vessels we already are in Jesus. We look forward to that day when we will be greeted by Christ. The end of this race, give us strength now and help our, our souls to be still with what we're facing as we're about to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.